This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. When you need your bank, Capital One is right in the palm of your hand. So you can check your balance, deposit checks, pay bills and transfer money from your phone with a top rated app. This is banking reimagined. Get started online anytime. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. This is a BBC Radio 4 archive edition of Alistair Cook's Letter from America. Good morning. While we were wondering whether there'll be another war in the Gulf and whether there'll soon be any war to fight in Bosnia, I found myself thinking back to the third week of September 1938. After a sparkling holiday in England, disturbed at the end by the oncoming rumble of Munich, we were sailing back to New York on the pride of the French line, the huge, sleek, and elegant Normandy. After three days at sea, we had good reason to congratulate ourselves, as you will see, on our choice of ship, and by the same token to feel sorry for westbound passengers on the smaller nine nights and ten days ships. For we woke up one morning, or were more or less shaken, hurled up, to find the ocean sloshing above the portholes, leaving the immediate impression that we were already five fathoms down with all hands. Another enormous lurch, and the sound of the decks cracking, and now there was through the portholes nothing but a leaden sky. I seem to remember we'd wakened to press the steward's button, and he came tottering and wheeling in in a creditable impersonation of Charlie Chaplin in modern times. He was sorry, but it was impossible to serve any food or drink till things calmed down. Understood. What's going on, we asked. Ah, he said, Zelekinox. He was right. It was early morning, the 21st of September, but, we thought, some equinox. Well, I won't go on to describe the indescribable, except to say that through the day things got much worse. The great ship came spinning out of the water like a dolphin, shuddered in midair, and crashed down into the deeps. I learned later that five people, out of a passenger list of something like 1,500, went hand over hand on ropes to get down to dinner. It was easing off by nightfall, the great ship merely bouncing up and booming down. We woke to a brilliant morning, the ocean a slow, heaving, glistening pond. Under our door, as usual, was the ship's newspaper. Ship's newspapers on any line consisted of four, maybe six pages a very bare information, quick, short summaries of the wire services, supplemented by jolly pieces by way of what we called human interest and funny stories. There were that morning, as I recall, no funny stories. The front page had a nonsensical headline, Hurricane A New Hyphen York. Not surprising, coming from the French, who wouldn't know that hurricanes do not blow into or near New York. 
However, we read the accompanying story and revised our judgment about the French when, sticking out from the sombre prose, French is specially well suited to catastrophe, were names that we weren't merely familiar with, they were the places where we lived and had our being. Southold, Greenport, Peconic, West Hampton, Southampton. They form a cluster of small towns at the eastern end of Long Island through which the hurricane had screamed its way and done outrageous damage. On and across Long Island Sound, flooding the coastal cities, New London, Rhode Island, Providence, and then up through New England, killing over 600 people and destroying 100,000 houses and stores and churches and stripping the state of New Hampshire of two-thirds of its stand of white birch before the monster petered out in Canada. We later discovered that this 1938 hurricane was the first to hit the northeastern United States in about 80 years. But since then, since the 1950s anyway, we seem to be the preferred glide path, so to speak, of about one big blow in three. I have been in the thick, the thick, grey, howling nothingness of three or four hurricanes since then, but the memory of them, the visual memory of their damage, has faded far more than that of 1938. What with the fallen trees and crumpled roadway and broken bridges, it took us about a week to be able to drive the five miles from our village, Southold, east to the fishing port of Greenport. The high winds, that means the whirling counterclockwise winds that blow at a height of about 20 feet, they are the murderous agent that with a vicious whisking motion unscrew trees and pluck buildings out of the ground. Until 1938, the characteristic tree of New England was the feather duster elm, so-called, a tall, slender tree that curves out in a frozen fountain of foliage. It doesn't exist today. The main street of Southold was lined with these elms, but the 38 hurricane uprooted them all, pulling the sidewalk and the pavement along with them, so that you had to climb through a street-long broken trench to get anywhere. Two years after the hurricane, the Dutch elm disease came creeping east from, I believe, Ohio, the Middle West anyway, and in the next 20 years just about ravaged that noble tree. Greenport, the fishing town, once a whaling port, was the town nearest to us with a movie house. The day after the hurricane, always the beautiful day after the hurricane, the cinema had been neatly dislodged, uplifted, and deposited two miles out in Peconic Bay. To balance this false distribution of objects, half a dozen sizable yachts, which had been at anchor offshore, were lifted and blown into town and were on display right way up, upside down, on Greenport's main street. On the south shore, across the bay from us, lies the oceanside town of West Hampton, cheek by jowl with the colonial village of Rimpsenburg, 
where P.G. Woodhouse lived, and would subsequently say he was sorry to have been away then, and missed what I imagine they call humdinger. There were, it was reported, 27 people attending a matinee in the West Hampton cinema that afternoon. Next morning, all that was left of it, and them, was a ragged hole in the ground. Theatre audience projectionists were far out to sea. The power, the power of the wind that's always so difficult to credit is its ability not just to blow things over with a deafening sound and rip off roofs, but to get inside structures and do the sort of ingenious damage you'd only expect from a dexterous madman. You know that New Orleans lies nine feet below sea level. You cannot bury people underground because only a few feet from the surface is marsh. So the cemeteries have piled up the dead in tombs above ground, long streets of what look like lockers. So they are. Well, in the 1957 hurricane that fell on New Orleans, not only did the wind whip the coffins from their tombs, but ripped the bodies out of the coffins. The most palpable sign of the wind's accurate power can be seen on any wooden house which, before the storm, was painted. In New England, as you know, most houses, certainly most old houses, are made of wood and painted white. We have an old New England salt box house up the point from us. And two hours after a 1954 hurricane that came right through our house, we went up the point to see how our neighbours were doing. We thought we'd taken a wrong turn. Their shining white house was stripped, shaved rather, down to the bare wood, not one dab or grain of paint. And everywhere, instead of dense foliage, not a leaf on any tree. So now, the first hurricane of the 1992 season... They always start brewing in the Caribbean at the end of August, beginning of September, in the Northern Hemisphere, that is. And the first was also one of the worst to hit southern Florida in 30 years. In anticipation of it, they managed to evacuate and move inland, farther up the peninsula, over one million people. That's a boggling figure. I don't remember anything like it. But the aerial pictures of 40 miles of bumper-to-bumper motor cars and vans all sliding north made it believable. You'll have seen the far-ranging helicopter shots of the appalling devastation of the coastal town south of Miami. One's immediate response is to marvel that so far not more than a score of people have died. The great difference between the casualty count in the old hurricanes and the new is quite simply the existence of a federal hurricane center, which in turn was made possible by the development, after the early space flights, of weather satellite photography. I remember only a few years ago being with a ten-year-old grandson and smothering a feeling of irritation at him for sitting there and yawning while we watched one of the miracles of our age, a satellite picture of the whole of North America, with the weather systems moving in full view. 
No such warnings existed 50 years ago, in 1938, for example, on the fateful 21st of September. The New York Times, that morning, had the weather forecast, as usual, in the upper right-hand corner of the front page. It said, seasonably cool, high temperature around 70, rain likely later. Within six hours, the hurricane of the century was roaring across Long Island. I recall a farmer who lived near us. He woke up that morning and found in his mailbox a new barometer he'd ordered. He opened it up, and the needle was way over. It said, hurricane. What rubbish, he thought. He wrapped it up again and walked off the two miles into town to return it with a complaint to the post office. He didn't make it back home for two days, staying after the first hundred-mile-an-hour gust bivouacked in the post office basement. Nowadays we spot the hurricanes when they're struggling to be born and plot their perilous life mile by mile and project their likely landfall. Which is why one million were safely trundled away from the Florida coast and hundreds of thousands from the coast of Louisiana. But the plight of maybe two million people without light or power and three-quarters of a million without homes is grievous. In both states by midweek, hundreds of thousands of men and women and children defying a curfew were roaming the cities nearest to their shattered homes, searching for tinned foods, batteries, petrol, water, charcoal for barbecue grills. A young woman in a trashed suburb bearing the euphonious name of Pine Lakes said, They're saying on the radio to boil all your water. She'd waited two hours to buy a one-liter bottle. What, she asked, am I supposed to boil water on? At this point, I don't have a home. That was Letter from America with Alastair Cook. You can find more Letters from America and thousands of other programmes for curious minds on the Radio 4 website. When you need your bank, Capital One is right in the palm of your hand. So you can check your balance, deposit checks, pay bills, and transfer money from your phone with a top-rated app. This is Banking Reimagined. Get started online anytime. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.